We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I am a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and honored to be that. I'm the president of uh, Fire Consulting and Case Review International, fireanalysis.com, and also CFIS, which is the Consolidated Fire Investigation Services. Now, I am honored to have Steve Fear here today. Uh, Mr. Fear spells his name F-E-H-R. He's an attorney in Kansas, from Kansas City and serves as special counsel to the National Hockey League Players Association. And has pri- and pr- and prior to this, um, the Major League Baseball Players Association. Um, and and we're going to talk about now. You say, what does that have to do with fire? Well, uh, back in uh, in 1980, uh, there was a, a firefighter strike. And in Kansas City, and uh, Mr. Fear was a, a young associate then. He'll tell a story about that. Uh, and uh, and so we wanted to talk about that, but we also wanted to talk about sports. We never get to into sports in in this show, and and everybody's kind of interested in sports, really. Um, uh, Mr. Fear has been working in sports since 1980, and um, and so he's been involved in. Uh, lockouts and strikes and collective bargaining and collusion cases and uh, and and uh, and uh, and the regarding the use of performance enhancing drugs um, and he was a uh, he, he led to the events led to the passage of the Kurt Flood Act and I come from St Louis so I like to talk about things like uh, like Kurt Flood and and um, there was Lou Brock once upon a time a guy named that and then I think there was somebody that hit a few home runs for St Louis that kind of got into the, allegedly put into the uh, enhancing drugs. Mr. F- Mr. Fear, please uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. Well, I appreciate you, Looking sir. Looking forward to it. Well, I'm glad because, you know, you know, we met, we met uh, at a, at a, an evening with uh, Senator Claire <coughs> McCaskill um, from Missouri. I know she's uh, in a re-election battle. Uh, she is one of those persons that is crazy smart. She was, she was a, She's a wonderful woman, and she she was a prosecutor in uh, Jackson County. Uh, in fact, you you know about that, don't you? Oh yes, Claire and I go way back. Uh, in fact, she worked with my wife uh, in the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office uh, under Albert Reeder when he was the prosecutor in the early 1980s. We've known her since then. Uh, been involved in her campaign since her very first one for the state. Uh, legislature way back then. Yes, and uh, she was great. She knows she used to go to fire scenes actually as a prosecutor. I do. And uh, and I was with her. Uh, I, I was a private investigator, but we did cases uh, together that, that went to criminal prosecution. Uh, and also, um, uh, she she was she was great. She used to go out there with the at, to the actual scenes, and a lot of uh, prosecutors didn't really want to do it then. They even gave her her own. Uh, bunker gear and everything. So she's a nice, great, great woman. Uh, she was also instrumental in, in farming the Kansas City Arson Task Force. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not, but I'm not surprised. 
Claire is, uh, excuse me, Senator McCaskill is always one who's never been afraid of getting her hands dirty, and she rolls up her sleeves and gets involved. And in my opinion, we can't afford to lose her. I hope she stays where she is. I do too, because she is. Uh, she's willing to t- uh, say truth to power. And, Absolutely. And she's um, she's on the Armed Forces Committee. She's well, you can see her on TV every once in a while because she's she's willing to stand up there. And she's very good at that. Yeah, she is. And you know, I think. Here's another thing that I like about her, and that is, and I know this is not about her show, but I just hit, it hit me. She is willing to to talk to to across the aisle. She's willing to to work with uh, Republicans, and that that's a rare commodity on both sides of this aisle. There's so uh, there's so much partisanship. It drives me crazy. She has had a long and varied and successful career as a prosecutor, a state legislator, a state auditor, a gubernatorial candidate, and now a senator. And uh, I think she's doing a great job. Yeah, I hope they. Be I interesting hope to see what happens in this current environment. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote with my uh, income. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some money. Uh, I don't live in Missouri. That's my problem. I can't cross the line. But uh, but uh, I'll tell you what. We're gonna try and get her in. But uh, let's talk about it for a minute, sir. Uh, you were a young associate. My understanding was when when uh, when the Kansas City Fire. Uh, fighters uh, went on strike. What what did they do that for? Why did they go on strike? You know, I don't remember the details of what provoked the strike that well, but it was uh, 1980, and I'd been with a small union side law firm in downtown Kansas City uh, uh, called Jolly Moran, Walsh, Hager, and Gordon, later known as the Jolly Walsh firm, that did a lot of Kansas City-based labor law. And we did not represent the firefighters. We did represent uh, the, the teachers union in Kansas City, Missouri, that also got themselves in some difficulty with a couple of strikes, which were, uh, what is the word, illegal. Uh, but the firefighters went on strike uh, in March of 80, and it seemed to be a very tense situation. And senior partner Jim Walsh walked in one day and said, we have to do something. We have to do something. Uh, didn't really know what we could do. But did, did they fire? Did they firefighters? They they fired some firefighters over that, didn't they? Well, they went on strike, which was not legal. Uh-huh. And then the city manager Robert Kipp said publicly that since they had illegally gone on strike, they were terminated, and he could not rehire them, even if he wanted to rehire them. That's like forty-two of them, or something. Something like that. And then uh, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do and hit the books and. I don't recall it in great detail, but it seemed to me on a Friday afternoon that uh, that he was wrong, that he had every right, power, and authority to rehire them if he wanted to. So we concocted a complaint and went into state court uh, w- with sort of two competing and different legal concepts. One is to get the judge to imp- issue uh, something akin to a temporary restraining order, meaning here's a temporary order that says you can do this or you must do that, uh, which is not at all uncommon in, in labor disputes. Often a, a union will go on strike or threaten to go on strike, and the employer will run into court and say issue an order saying they can't go on strike at least for a few days till we have a fuller hearing. The second concept was uh, a declaratory judgment. That is a situation when a judge doesn't necessarily order anyone to do anything. He just makes the statement that this is what the law is. Mm -hmm. And so we went into court with a rather unusual complaint. Uh, I think our client was the local Teamsters Union saying the judge should issue an order saying the city manager had the right, right to rehire the firefighters if he wanted to. 
Not that he had to, not that he should, not that anything was particularly wrong or right, but that his statement in the press was that he could not rehire them was misleading. And we had a rather contentious uh, uh, hearing over a couple of hours in front of a judge whose name was Gene Martin, who uh, is still a member, uh, notice he's still in the Bar Association, but I believe he's retired. Uh, and by gosh, he issued the order saying that the judge, the city manager was able to rehire the firefighters if he chose to do so. And that produced, that was a Friday afternoon and it produced a big headline on March 22, 1980 on the Kansas City Star that says, judge says Kip, the city manager, can re reinstate firemen. And for whatever reason, the, the strike in fact settled uh, on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, so isn't that interesting? So you guys were not even really involved in it, but you were able to bring, uh, you were able to bring something before a court that, 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 uh, that said um, he could rehire him, right? Well, in fact, there's a third legal concept that we should, probably should have mentioned and perhaps we should have lost on called standing. Do we have standing to raise those issues? And in fact, that was uh, what the, uh, the uh, attorney for the city was arguing that, you know, we, we were not the firefighters and we were not the city. Uh, we were just some labor organization interested and involved. We, of course, made arguments that this affects everyone in Kansas City because there may be fires and the fire department will be not equipped to handle them without any firefighters. Uh, and perhaps, who knows what the, was in the judge's mind, but perhaps he too thought this could do no harm and it might do some good and it might create some public pressure on the city to settle the dispute. Right. And well, sometimes I, you do things, take a chance and it works. Right. Well, see, I, I was new in Kansas City at that time. I had moved out in June of 79 and this was, it was March of 80. And so, I was I was there. I was I was still making friends with the with the police and fire people and stuff like that. And forty two people. Uh, it doesn't sound like a whole lot of people for a major uh, fire department, but it was. It was it was enough people that it was going to have. They were going to run shortages. And in fact, they did. And what happened was the police, the the supervisors for the fire department would like run the pumps, and the police had to actually be pressed in the service to to put out the fires. Now, they, they called on the arson unit, the police arson unit at that time, and they were using them as firefighters. And let me say, they were not happy. And thank goodness they didn't have to put out many fires because they probably weren't very, very well trained or equipped <laughs> they, to do that. They were not, and, and they, they admitted that. They said, my goodness, I think we burned those buildings down. Every time we went out there, we had a struggle with them. Well, firefighters are trained, right? And that's what police are, tra police are trained to do one thing. Firefighters are trained to do another. And it speaks to the general problem of uh, public employees in general have very little in the way of rights to collectively bargain and so forth. And uh, situations like that are going to arise. Yes, and, and when you see everything every once in a while, well, in this area, you'll see something that firefighters uh, – the local firefighters uh, uh, here in Kansas City have too much power politically and blah, 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 and stuff like that, but they still don't have uh, collective bargaining rights, correct? Correct. They're not in, in anywhere near the same situation as an employee in the private sector would be. Right. So, yeah, and that's really too bad because what happens is uh, there are some times that uh, – that, uh, they can be taken advantage of, and there, I imagine it goes the other way too. I imagine that uh, that sometimes they are that there are uh, things that shouldn't be going on on, on the other side too. But uh, let's let's. I really, when I was a police officer, um, 
course, I, I had prior to that, uh, I had been in a union. Uh, I was in a Teamsters union. Um, and uh, not all, to, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, not all t- unions are terrible things like they're portrayed by certain politicians and, and things of that nature. If there was, we wouldn't have a 40 hour week. We wouldn't have decent pay if it wasn't for the unions, in my opinion. But, uh, and that's my view. But uh, anyway, I was in it and, um, and they were uh, trying to form a, uh, a union where I worked. And I, of course, uh, tried to join that, in which time uh, uh, got myself in a lot of trouble. They didn't like that very much. It happens, but you have to stand up for what you believe and do what you think is right. That's exactly right. But that was a, that was when I was a, I was driving a truck before I, I got to uh, I went into the Air Force to become a, a, a police officer. But at any rate, so let's talk about you, sir. I mean, you got um, you well your uh, your argument with that firm, the big uh, you know big headline, and then they settled the next day. Well, I hope you got a little bit of. Did you get any kudos out of that for them? Uh, I got a few people thanking me for what I've done and uh, that nice headline, which to this day is framed and hanging uh, on a wall in my office. And that's enough. That's, well, that's great. Because I tell you, I tell you what, after, I know since then, your career has been just impressive, sir. You, uh, you've argued before the Supreme Court. You've, um, you've represented many people, which we'll talk about, the some really um, stars that everybody will recognize. Um, how did you how did you get into how did you get into representing like Major League Baseball Players Association? How'd that work? Uh, well, the phrase "sheer luck" comes to mind. <laughs> uh, the story is a rather convoluted one, uh, but it shows how uh, uh, much of life depends on being in the right place at the right time. I was still in law school at the time. Uh, my brother, three years older had graduated from UMKC in 73, done a two-year clerkship with a federal judge named Elmo Hunter in the downtown Kansas City courthouse. And he had joined the law firm we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the predecessor of the Jolly Walsh Law Firm, as an associate. And he had been there exactly uh, uh, three months, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there was this case winding its way through the baseball system, which ultimately led to players having rights they never had before, the right to be free agents, became known as the Messersmith-McNally case. And it was a a simple labor arbitration under uh, the uniform players contract. And the owners chose to file a lawsuit to say the grievance could not go forward, the arbitrator had no jurisdiction to hear the case. Mm. And for reasons lost in the dustbins of baseball history, Ewing Kaufman, the owner of the Royals, at an owner's meeting, volunteered to file the lawsuit. Hmm. So he filed a lawsuit which could have been filed. Anywhere. Anywhere. Certainly anywhere there was a team. Uh, At that time, the Major League Players Association consisted of exactly two professionals. They both come from the Steelworkers. uh, (laughs) And they had attended Steelworkers Lawyers Conferences, and they knew the Steelworkers lawyers throughout the country. So they called the Jolly Walsh firm uh, that uh, were the Steelworkers lawyers in Kansas City. And my brother got to work on the case. And so, and ergo, and everything sprang from that. Uh, uh, eventually, they won the underlying arbitration. Uh, they won the lawsuit contesting the arbitration. Uh, they created a new collective bargaining agreement under which players had free agency rights and started to earn much more money. Uh, and then a year later, uh, they called an or actually 
yeah, a year later, they called and offered my brother the job of general counsel, at which point the Fear family spent about six weeks debating whether Don could leave a wonderful place like Kansas City for New York, which was sort of like a foreign country to the Fear family. I'd never been there. Uh, and uh, the punchline is my sister-in-law never forgave me for winning the argument. No, so you said he should go. I thought he had to go. And of course, working in baseball, what could be neater than that? That's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, I... I uh, I'm I spend a lot of time in New York now uh, uh, doing commercial kitchen fire investigations. I like New York. I'm one of those people that that like the city and uh, and the bustle, hustle, and uh, and the people are not uh, some horrible um, people uh, there either. Uh, but uh, he, how long did he spend there? And you were when did you, did you go with him or did you or what? No, Don took the job. Uh, it was general counsel starting in August of 77 for the MLBPA. And then uh, a year later, I sort of uh, filled his vacancy at the Jolly uh, Walsh Law Firm, went there, started doing federal court cases for uh, uh, labor unions. And then a few years later, I, I was able to get in and start doing some of the baseball work. And uh, a few years after that, Don became the executive director. I'll be darned. Yeah. So you're, but you've been involved in it since uh, what? Since uh, with baseball, I mean, since what? 1980 was the first time I did any work uh, uh, for the Players Association and helping them with their salary arbitrations. And then uh, in 1981, I was introduced to a fellow named Frank White, whom you may have heard about. <laughs> yeah. So he, he was kind of very, he was very good, not only a baseball star, but still, still in the news today. Very in, much so. In the Kansas City area. Uh, he's the executive. Uh, County executive, I believe, right? Right. Uh, anyway, so you had a you had a case, a collusion case, uh, eighty six to ninety. Uh, that that ultimately led to um, to the players receiving two hundred and eighty million in addition to other benefits. How did that work out? Well, the players through the first few years of free agency were a little concerned because they perceived that there was uh, what we call deference to the former club of a free agent. In other words, it seemed like uh, the other teams would hold back when a player was free agent until they were convinced that he wasn't going to re-sign with his old team. Mm -hmm. So we added a provision in the 1985 agreement that would, at a certain point in time, cut off the former club. You had to re-sign with your old club by January 8th, or you could not sign with them until May, mm -hmm. obviously, after the season was well underway. Uh, and shortly after the 1985 settlement, the clubs found a way to use that against the players. Uh, in the 1985, there was a meeting at the 1985 World Series in St. Louis. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, as we later learned, Peter Uberoff, the commissioner, admonished the clubs over their spending habits, etc. And shortly after that, when the free agency season started, no player received offers except from his old club. Oh, that's... There was no competition for free agents. Uh, and so with the deadline looming uh, and uh, having to face the choice of would they re-sign or be frozen out, virtually all of the major free agents, uh, not virtually all, all of the major free agents re-signed with their old club uh, on January 8th. Hmm. And that's hmm. how the first case started. Well, I can understand that because it, was, it seems... Well, they would never get another offer, be, and that was just collusion. That was total collusion between the, the owners. That's what we believed, and we tried it the first case in front of an arbitrator, and uh, took uh, close to two years before we finally got a ruling, but he essentially said 
that even though the owners had showed up and testified that there was no agreement, that there was no collusion, that there had to be one, that their um, conduct made no sense otherwise. Well, and, and well, and that and it doesn't to me. And, and but they ended up getting a two hundred and eighty million dollars, right, in, in other benefits. And it took uh, and renewed free agency and a number of other things and more protections against it in future agreements uh, and a number of other things that came on the heels of the nineteen ninety uh, settlement of of all three cases. An interesting story about how that case came to be was that before there was free agency, in 1965 or 6, mm -hmm. uh, the two best pitchers in the game, arguably Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, played for the same team, the Dodgers. And they both held out, that was all you could do at that time, uh -huh. uh, is refuse to show up to work because you had no free agency rights or salary arbitration rights. Uh -huh. And they held out with a twist, which was you sign both of us or you sign neither of us. They were oh. working together. Right. I'm not sure how well it worked out for them, but at one point in the summer of 1976 when they were negotiating the new CBA and talking about free agency rights, one of the owners said players shouldn't be able to do what Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale did. They shouldn't be able to work together. And Marvin Miller, the head of the MLBPA, said – okay, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, as long as it's a two-way street, you can have that. So we crafted, they crafted, I was uh, still in law school at the time, this uh, uh, provision that says uh, action in concert is prohibited and clubs and players must act solely in their own interest in the exercise of free agency rights. Mm. Well, that's great. I mean, it, uh, and uh, some that was doing the best – Best pitchers ever in baseball, for crying out loud! And uh, they were just trying to trying to get uh, trying to get the uh, uh, well. That's let's talk about that for a second. A lot of people don't understand all this, all the things that people have to go through when when they become a professional baseball player or hockey league player, or whatever. I knew uh, I was lucky enough to know uh, a. Um, uh, pitcher for, for the Chicago White Sox that lived across the street from me here in Overland Park and and he he was gone all the time he's he played ball all the time it didn't make any difference if it was summer or winter he was gone he was and he always had to be in conditioning and he was he was going to get married and I mean his 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 girlfriend I mean it was six months you know he wasn't seeing her for a long time because he was out it takes a lot of work to become a professional athlete doesn't it Absolutely. Most players who make it have been planning for it and training for it their whole life, and it's pretty much a 24-7 gig. Yeah, and somebody, and somebody. well, a lot of people say, oh, those players, they get so much money, and, and they get so many, and they shouldn't be paid that much money and all that stuff. Well, they don't realize how many games there are a year, uh, how, how much conditioning there are, and and, uh, and what they have to go through. And frankly, and they have a, they have a, a certain amount of years that they're going to be in the league, and that's it, right? Yes, it's not so much how hard it is or, or that we uh, many of us would do it if only we could. Yeah. Uh, but it's also what is produced through the fruit of their labors. And sports is different in that uh, uh, there's no product to sell. You're not selling uh, computers or cars or widgets. All you have to sell is the entertainment and the performances of the players. And uh, I, I recall uh, when we had the strike in 1994 – and President Clinton was asked about it at a press conference shortly after it started, and uh, he made a comment of uh, uh, there's $2 billion 
dollars per year going through the baseball industry, and we're only talking about, you know, uh, 800 players and several hundred other individuals in the industry, surely we can work it all out. Uh, and now that $2 billion a year from 1994 is approaching the $10 billion a year. <laughs> so if baseball generates $10 billion a year uh, off the performances of 750 or 800 players, they ought to be well paid. I think so too. And what about uh, what about their bobbleheads and their T-shirts and stuff like that with their names in them? Do they do they get any of those proceeds? They do. They do. There's a certain royalty, and all the players' associations have licensing agreements that help do a number of things, including help them fund certain aspects of the uh, uh, the, the expense of, of running the players' associations, etc. Uh, and Marvin Miller actually started that as well in baseball through baseball cards. Uh, uh, the bubblegum cards from Tops, which some of us are old enough to remember, uh, by going around and telling all the players, you're not getting anything out of this and you should not sign a new agreement uh, until we have an agreement with Tops that covers all players. And a couple of years later, they had an agreement and look where it is today. Yeah, I wish I still had my collection baseball cards. My God, they'd be worth some, worth some money now. We Did your mom to, throw them out? Of, of course. It's, it's naturally. And, uh, and then, of course, we used to play that at, 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 uh, with each other, bounce them off the wall if they went on top to bottom, if they landed on another guy's cards, you know, all that stuff, baseball cards. Uh, anyway, but um, so, uh, and I, did you play that when you were a kid? Did you play baseball cards? You, you still I collected baseball cards. I don't know if I played most much of the game with it. No, I, I've got a couple of uh, Al, old Al K lines. He was my favorite player, but uh, no, I don't have very many cards from from my youth. I, I met Stan Musial one time, and uh, great guy, great guy, and uh, at Sportsman, the old Sportsman Park on Grand Avenue, before they tore it down. And I mean, Bush has had a couple of stadiums since then, and they're moved downtown. But, but uh, yeah, it, I know I, I ran up to him. It was Cardinal night and so i ran up to the white cadillac and it said and i said to him hi stan he said hi kid and that's the whole thing i had his i had his uh, signature and this is autograph so okay so when we come back we're going to talk about a couple of the other things one of the deep things that you guys have been involved in i want to talk about the kurt flood act too when we come back you don't mind i'd be happy to okay so let's uh take a break here and when you come back uh, come back to speaking of fire Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. 
FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show... Please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hello and welcome back to Speaking of Fire. This is Mike Slatman. Donna's not here today. Uh, she's ill, and I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, she's been working and going all over the country. We have a great guest here, an attorney named Steve Fear. Uh, Steve is a, uh, a counsel for the National Hockey uh, League uh, Players Association and a former counsel for the Major League Baseball Players Association. We've already spoken in our first uh, segment about the firefighter strike here and Kansas City, which was resolved. And, uh, oh, by the way, all those people were hired back, I believe, weren't they? Yes, that is my understanding. <laughs> okay. And now we're going to talk about something that that, uh, that that Mr. Fear has been involved in that's really interesting to me, uh, particularly since coming uh, coming from St. Louis. There there was, used to be a baseball player named Kurt Flood. Is that correct, sir? That certainly is. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about the Kurt Flood Act that you were that you were represented the Players Association in that? Well, to go way back, uh, history of relations between baseball players and baseball owners was horrible for uh, many years, uh, starting with the invention of something called uh, the Reserve Clause. Uh, I believe sometime in the 1870s, the reserve clause means you are reserved to your team and you can't go anywhere else unless your team doesn't want you anymore. Um, And there was actually an antitrust suit when a league called the Federal Baseball League folded, which actually had a team in Kansas City, I think, in 1913, 1914. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the Baltimore franchise thought that the owners of the American National League were engaging in illegal restraints of trade under the antitrust acts. So he sued. The case went to the United States Supreme Court, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of our greatest jurists in what many people believe was not one of his better days, mm-hmm. said that baseball is not interstate is not inter, involved in interstate a business involved in interstate commerce subject to the antitrust laws. Uh oh. That it is uh, <laughs> baseball games are merely state affairs. I believe was a line that he used. All right. Uh, so that. Uh, was the law, and baseball players had no rights, And uh, unlike in the other sports. Uh, perhaps people don't know how you obtained rights uh, to free agency in basketball and hockey and football. And the way you did is the court, it's through antitrust litigation, where the court said things like, 
the reserve clause and the draft saying you mm-hmm. only have one employer you can work for are illegal under the antitrust laws unless they're part of a collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. But baseball players didn't have that right. Uh, and so uh, in 1967, the Cardinals won the World Series. Mm-hmm. In 1968, they were in but lost the World Series in seven games to the Tigers. And in 1969, they didn't do so well. And following the 1969 season, the Cardinals traded uh, Kurt Flood to the Philadelphia Phillies. And he said famously, you know, I'm not a chattel or, 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 or livestock, uh, and I'm not going. And he sued. Um, <laughs> the case went to the Supreme Court. And a lot of people think uh, Kurt Flood is the one who brought players free agency. He didn't. It was the Messersmith case that we talked about earlier. Uh, but he set the stage for Messersmith by going back to the Supreme Court. Uh, unfortunately, he lost. I believe the vote was five to three or six to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the court said basically that the d- decision of Holmes from 1922 in the federal baseball case is wrong. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's been on the book for all these year, books for all these years, and Congress has not chosen to overturn it. So we're going to let it stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he lost, briefly resumed his career before then with the Washington Senators, uh, but didn't last long. Uh, and so he's widely perceived as a hero to baseball players, someone who sacrificed his career for the greater good, uh, but saw little of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we settled the great baseball strike of 94, 95, and had another two years playing under the old rules before we finally had a new CBA, part of the understanding was that the baseball players would go with us to Congress, excuse me, the baseball owners Mm -hmm. would go with the players to Congress and lobby for a fix to uh, the antitrust problem by giving baseball players at least major league baseball players, the same rights that players in other sports have. And we were able to do that, and that was signed into law, uh, I believe, in uh, 1998 and became known as the Kurt Flood Act. Right, and the CBA, of course, is a collective bargaining agreement. Yes, sorry for shorthand. No, that's right. No, no, it's just someone... Uh, Okay, and you've been involved in in all kinds of really neat stuff. In fact, you you even uh, testified... uh, uh, in uh, in Congress, uh, it's in congressional hearings, sir. Did you not before the Judiciary Committee? Yes, that was in two thousand and one uh, when we feared, uh, no pun intended, that we were headed towards <laughs> another labor dispute or work stoppage. Uh, and uh, shortly after nine eleven, I believe uh, the owners announced that they were. Uh, contracting two teams. They wouldn't say who they were or when they would do it exactly, but they were going to eliminate two teams. And we were suddenly sort of off to the races. We were bargaining for a new agreement. We were bargaining over the effects of their so-called contraction. Uh, There were lawsuits flying back and forth saying, uh, you can't contract my team from various cities, et cetera, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, uh, the baseball owners, of course, claimed that they had to do that because they were losing all sorts of money, and that led to a congressional hearing, I believe, in December of 2001, uh, where I was before Maxine Waters, who's still there, uh, and uh, on a panel with Bud Selig and uh, Jesse Ventura, interesting group. Yes, it really sounds like it, uh, and the outcome of that was? Uh, There was no particular outcome, other than people argued long and hard about uh, whether the owners could 
uh, contract your team, should contract your teams, and whether or not they were really losing money or, in fact, uh, making a lot of money and uh, <laughs> uh, something we argued with them about for decades. Yeah, they didn't contract them. They did not contract them. We had a case challenging their right to do it. It was fully tried. It was briefed. It was submitted. Uh, and when we settled uh, the CBA in late August of 2002, mm -hmm. uh, which was the first time in eight tries where the baseball players and owners had gotten to a new collective bargaining agreement without a work stoppage, part of the agreement was that they would not contract those teams. And I suspect uh, the people who own uh, uh, the Minnesota Twins these days, which was probably one of the teams they would have contracted or happy uh, that they weren't contracted because that team is worth far, far more now than it was in 2001. They didn't know who the other one was supposed to be? There were rumors that it might be uh, Montreal. Uh, Kansas City was like way down the list, but uh, never seemed likely. Mm -hmm. um, Seattle Mariners, I think, was another possibility at the time. Well, uh, well of course, you know, I got to do it again. I come from St. Louis, so the Cardinals have always been my team and all that stuff. But well, let me say it very clearly that uh, I was very happy when the Royals, once the Cardinals were out of the series, of course, very happy to hear when the, when the Royals won the World Series. In 1985? Yeah, yeah. And no, oh, no, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. That was the one where they, fought, they beat us. In 2015. Was, and, you know, Andujar is still a bad name in, in St. Louis. It's... That pitcher, remember, Andujar? Who was their best pitcher on yeah, but at least two teams that made the World Series? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But anyway, so anyway, so no, I was no, recently, recently, I was happy for the Royals. But then, uh, and then, of course, um, and then you, you know, well, they're a story. St. Louis has got this storied franchise, right? Just won so many. And, uh, and so, but um, yeah, I don't think they're losing any money. Uh, I don't think any of them are losing any money, frankly. But uh, there's also other things. There are other things. There was a, a thing that you testified in uh, or were in connection with uh, the Mitchell investigation. Can you give us a little bit about that? Well, the Mitchell investigation, uh, which, if memory serves, was 2006 and 2007, mm -hmm. uh, as part of what I refer to as sort of the baseball drug wars, the steroid era, uh, Etc. in which uh, uh, the commissioner hired former Senator Mitchell to conduct an investigation and issue a report on the state of the game insofar as uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, and I was representing the union throughout that process, which was sort of a difficult place to be because there were no real rules. He had no authority to subpoena people. He, he had no uh, 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 particular way to put anyone under oath. Uh, and he, they could put non-union employees in situations which they had to answer. But, of course, employees were protected by a union. You have to go through the union in order to uh, force them to do anything. Uh -huh. And so it was a rather difficult year and a half until Senator Mitchell finally issued his report. And, uh, and, and performance-enhancing drugs is, um, well, it's a, it's a pariah throughout the uh, – all all kinds of sports, okay? It's not like it's it's not being done or it hasn't been done. I mean, I think you can look at that not only in baseball but uh, football and uh, and uh, and let's see, well, even long distance biking. 
stuff like that. Uh, yeah, this, uh, that's races, race bikes, bike races. Um, but you also were involved in the U.S. versus CDT and and the Major League ba- uh, Baseball Players Association. Um, that was in the Ninth Circuit, uh, right? It produced, uh, I believe, four different Ninth Circuit opinions. Right. Uh, to be clear. I think, and I think my brother also thinks that, that in all our years at baseball and at the Players Association, maybe the one issue we didn't get out ahead of and should have is uh, the use of steroids or performance-enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind what we'd been through. We had been through the three years of collusion you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. We'd been through a time when the clubs tried to unilaterally submit, put drug clauses in players' agreements. Uh, we'd been through the 1994 strike and... Uh, uh, where a judge named Sonia Sotomayor found that the owners were engaged in bad faith bargaining and had to rescind the working conditions that they had unilaterally changed. Uh, And when the owners approached us at some point and said they wanted uh, to test players for drugs, you know, we would trust them no further than we could throw them. Uh, And so we resisted. But eventually with the 2002 agreement, we agreed to put our toe in the water, so to speak, and the agreement was that we would test players, but test them anonymously. Mm-hmm. And if more than five percent of the tests came back positive, we would then, in the next year, go to identified uh, testing with disciplinary consequences. But if not, we would just keep repeating the test. And so what happened was uh, during the Balco investigation, in which Barry Bonds and a number of other players were involved. Uh, the government said, well, we want all your test results. And we were negotiating with them the terms under which uh, they could receive some of our results, and we thought it should be limited only to the people they had cause to investigate. They conducted a search raid and seized all the results. Oh, did they? Including putting together a list that apparently was uh, what they believe the names of the players who tested positive, something that was supposed to remain private and confidential. That's what anonymous means. So <laughs> we went to court uh, to try and keep the names confidential. Unfortunately, after a seven-year battle, we were successful. How did they? How did they get those records? I mean, they uh, what is it? An assault? A raid on the on the offices? What what was it? How, how that yes, they. Executed search warrants and raided the uh, both the lab where the samples were stored and the testing company that analyzed the results. Seized the records. Amazing. So that would identify the individuals. Correct. Apparently, so I think I have to be careful what I say here. But, oh yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. Uh, no, no. 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 Okay. So forget that. And let's say it, that's a that's a recent thing in the news right now. The 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 president's former. Uh, uh, <laughs> doctor says that uh, his office was raided and then the records were taken out of his office. Well, that's a little different. It wasn't raided by the government. It was uh, uh, apparently, according to the story, raided by a, a couple of people who uh, worked for the president in a private capacity. But w- what we did in that situation is we went into court basically under the Fourth Amendment, the right of people to be free Secure. from unreasonable searches yes. and seizures. Okay. And uh, I don't think the government felt that way at the time, but I always thought we had the better of the argument uh, in that uh, your records ought to remain private unless there's probable cause. And it was sort of uh, one of the first cases uh, of the computer age in terms of what is in plain sight. You know, there's this doctrine in the law called uh, plain sight. In other words, a policeman stops 
somebody for speeding in the, in the back seat. He sees a, uh, a body with a knife sticking out of it and blood oozing. Well, right. that's in plain sight. Right. He can gather that evidence right. and use it against him. But in a computer, what's in plain sight? I mean, it's sort of, it's all there in one place. On the other hand, you have to go through a lot to pull up the information. Right. So the issue was, uh, under what circumstances can the government search the computer and pull up any darn thing it wants, and how broad are those implications? Unfortunately, uh, as I said, after a battle with three district court opinions, and then uh, it ended up being four uh, Ninth Circuit opinions, including two in-bank opinions, uh, meaning a broader court, uh, the court ruled that the government had overstepped its bounds and the name should remain anonymous. Well, I think that's great because, yeah, it, it ruled that uh, Caesars violated the Fourth Amendment. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, well, see, I'm very pretty familiar with the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, since I was a police officer and detective. So I'm, uh, and I know that there can be violations of those, and we go out of our way not to do so. Uh, but you've represented, I think you've presented, you've represented a lot of great players. Uh, uh, tell us a couple of the, the people that you uh, represented, sir, in different times at different times. Well, uh, as an agent, I represented Frank White, as we discussed before, who was uh, was and is a fine man and was a great player to represent, meant so much to Kansas City. I also had the privilege of being the agent for uh, a player from Kansas City named David Cohn, C-O-N-E, who also played here twice. He came up in the farm system, was traded to the Mets in what most people would regard as the worst trade the Royals ever made. <laughs> <clears throat> came back as a free agent and I negotiated the contract uh, following the 1992 season, won a Cy Young in the strike-shortened season of 1994, and then was, for better or worse, traded away by the Royals when the strike ended in uh, April of, of 1995. But David was a great client. Not only was he a very, very fine baseball player, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he, he was a multi-year All-Star. Uh, won 20 games, I believe, twice, and uh, uh, won, won a Cy Young, as we mentioned. Uh, and through David, we got through almost everything imaginable. Uh, uh, we had two salary arbitrations. Uh, um, we had two or three a very interesting free agency. Uh, uh, one year, he had the uh, bad judgment to say to a reporter that certain women who followed the Mets and other teams around were, were uh, groupies, and then he was sued for slander for calling them groupies. Oh, no. uh, so we've been through a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, also had the privilege, along with an older lawyer named Richard Moss, who was the lawyer who tried the Messersmith arbitration. <coughs> Originally, uh, players like Jack Morris and Fernando Valenzuela, uh, Gary Carter. Uh, so I've been lucky. Yeah, Hal McRae, too, and Andre, Andre Dawson, right? Nolan Ryan and... The gun grief. That's some great people. Andre Dawson was actually one of the better stories from the collusion days, if we can go back there, because in the second year of the collusion, uh, the players didn't all kowtow to the system and go back to their former clubs. Eight players, great players, some of them Hall of Fame players, including Andre, crossed the line and were sort of in no man's land because there was still no club that was willing to make them an offer. Mm -hmm. So... Andre and his agent, who was my senior partner, you could say, uh, Dick Moss, went to Arizona, went to the Cubs camp, and he had Andre sign a contract with the salary figure blank, blank. And then he went out and gave an impromptu press conference and announced to 
the press that Andre wanted to play for the Cubs and would play for the Cubs, play for the Cubs under whatever salary conditions uh, the club chose to uh, fill in the blank with. And so the Cubs relented to pressure. They signed Dawson. I believe he won the MVP the next year and had several great years with the Cubs. And, of course, several years later, Andre got a great deal of money out of that pot of $280 million that we referenced earlier when the collusion case is settled. It's great because, you see, when uh, once the Cardinals get out of uh, out of contention, I'll, I will um, – I'll generally pull for the National League, but when the when the Cubs just won, you know, the uh, World Series, I was on their side. And of course, a few people in my uh, in my St. Louis group said you can never root for the Cubs. <laughs> so I can. Well, let's in our, before we go, uh, tell me a minute about the only thing that people generally know about agents for for sports stars is what they saw in that movie, Show Me the Money. Jerry uh, Maguire. Jerry, yeah. Jerry McGuire, I'm sorry. Yes, show me the money is the, is the catchphrase. Sorry, Jerry McGuire. Do tell me something about how's it like to be a an agent for? How is it? Is it tough? It can be great. It can be tough. It can be exciting. It can be boring. It just depends how you do it and and how lucky you are. Each agent does things a little bit differently. I think in the long run, I wasn't cut out to be an agent. That's why I sort of got out of it after a while and and. Uh, started doing more work for uh, the Players Association. Uh, and, and certain agents have different styles. There's an agent named Scott Boris that's frequently in the, mo- in the news uh, and derided as a bad guy. But, you know, that's his shtick, if yeah. I could use that phrase. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm the bad guy, and, and I'm going to make these outrageous demands. And, you know, you're not going to meet my demands, but you'll go halfway there, and it'll still be a pretty good contact for my player contract, and uh, it works for him. Um, one story I could tell from my agent days that might interest Kansas City fans a little is there was a player named Steve Farr, mm-hmm. F-A-R-R, almost my name but not quite. Uh, uh, when we settled the strike in two days in 1985, uh, Fred White, bless his soul, uh, announced on the radio that the Royals were starting Steve Fear in the second game of the doubleheader. <laughs> Actually, they were starting Steve Farr, but it's understandable because Fear had been in the news. Uh, my brother had been in the news quite a bit. And he, but at any rate, Steve Farr was with the Royals, and I represented him. He had a couple of pretty good years as a setup man and eventually as their closer. Uh, and then I believe following the 89 season, he was a free agent. And he really loved Kansas City. He was engaged. He wanted to stay here. Uh, but, you know, the Royals offered him one year at something like 700000 The Yankees offered him three years at $2.4 million. It's all American. So <laughs> we agreed to terms with the Yankees, and the next day he called up and said, Steve, I can't do it. I can't go to New York. i got to stay here. Can you get me out of it? And I said, well, I probably can because there is this thing called guarantee language that uh, contracts are guaranteed within certain limits, and usually the practice was you – uh, announced that here are the, the financial terms of the contract, and then it would say SGP, meaning salary guarantee provision to be negotiated. And I said, if you want, I can take a position that's so unreasonable in terms of what the guarantee language should say uh, that they'll back off and you can be a free agent again and you go back and sign with the Royals. But I said, do me a favor. You know, it's Friday afternoon. Think about it. Take the weekend and think about it. He called me Monday and said, you're right. I have to do it. And signed with the Yankees and then later thank me for 
doing that and much many years later said I could tell that story and uh, even though it was confidential. Well, that was very nice. And, uh, you know, I, I know that ma- agents make some money. Uh, is it like some do, but a lot don't. I don't really. Okay. It's, There's no set thing like a 10 percent or, or anything. Like no, that. no, no. I, I mean, I, I think uh, the maximum I ever heard in baseball was was 5 percent and, and yeah. in, in basketball and football and hockey. Often they're trying to drill it down to three or four. So. Really? Well, I, I want to say one other thing. You're, you're special counsel for the National Hockey League right now, Players Association. And we talked uh, off air that uh, one of the things that they would like to do is, is, is something uh, in foreign lands. What would, you, what would they like to do? Well, it's our belief that the NHL has a chance to be the true, first truly, uh, uh, you know, transcontinental sport. Uh, uh, obviously, there's great interest throughout parts of Europe in the NHL. Uh, we had some exhibition games in uh, uh, China last year trying to open up that market. And I think today we're announcing there are going to be some more this next next season. We're going to have exhibition games in China. And who knows, someday maybe a regular season game there and maybe someday uh, a team great. in China. Who knows? That would be great. And, you know, well, sir, if, if somebody wanted to talk to you, the Steve Fear, how would they get in touch with you, sir? If they wanted your services or wanted to call you. Well, I'm sort of a one-client lawyer these days. You don't have to make any jokes about Tom Hagen, uh, <laughs> but uh, basically representing the NHLPA. But uh, I'm listed. I moved the office to Leewood. Uh, uh, I have a, an email, which is just steve at stephenfear.net, and uh, feel free to get in touch if you're interested. And that sphere is F-E-H-R, ladies and gentlemen. So anyway, well, I want to thank you so very much. It's been informative. Thank you so much for telling us something about this is the best, uh, best sports show I ever had. Oh, it's also the only one, but <laughs> it'll be the best one forever anyway, because I'm never going to bring another sports show on because I can't, I can't top this one. This is it. You're too kind. I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, now, next week... Um, well, we're going to keep it as a surprise. Next week, we've got another show coming up, and I want you to come back. And when you do come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.